Chapter Six, Part One of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Anne Cheng, London, England. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume 1, by Charles Mackay. Fortune-Telling, Part 1. And men still grope to anticipate the cabinet designs of fate, apply to wizards to foresee what shall and what shall never be. Hudibras, Part 3, Canto 3. In accordance with a plan laid down, we proceed to the consideration of the follies into which men have been led by their eager desire to pierce the thick darkness of futurity. God himself, for his own wise purposes, has more than once undrawn the impenetrable veil which shrouds those awful secrets, and, for purposes just as wise, he has decreed that except in these instances ignorance shall be our lot for ever. It is happy for man that he does not know what the morrow is to bring forth, but, unaware of this great blessing, he has, in all ages of the world, presumptuously endeavoured to trace the events of unborn centuries, and anticipate the march of time. He has reduced this presumption into a study. He has divided it into sciences and systems without number, employing his whole life in the vain pursuit. Upon no subject has it been so easy to deceive the world as upon this. In every breast the curiosity exists in a greater or less degree, and can only be conquered by a long course of self-examination, and a firm reliance that the future would not be hidden from our sight, if it were right that we should be acquainted with it. An undue opinion of our own importance in the scale of creation is at the bottom of all our unwarrantable notions in this respect. How flattering to the pride of man to think that the stars in their courses watch over him and typify by their movements and aspects the joys or the sorrows that await him. He, less in proportion to the universe than the all but invisible insects that feed in myriads on a summer's leaf are to this great globe itself, fondly imagined that eternal worlds were chiefly created to prognosticate his fate. How we should pity the arrogance of the worm that crawls at our feet, if we knew that it also desired to know the secrets of futurity, and imagined that meteors shot athwart the sky to warn it that a tom-tit was hovering near to gobble it up, that storms and earthquakes, the revolutions of empires, or the fall of mighty monarchs, only happened to predict its birth, its progress, and its decay. Not a whit less presuming has man shown himself. Not a whit less arrogant are the sciences, so called, of astrology, augury, necromancy, geomancy, palmistry, and divination of every kind. Leaving out of view the oracles of pagan antiquity and religious predictions in general, and confining ourselves solely to the persons who in modern times have made themselves most conspicuous in foretelling the future, we shall find that the 16th and 17th centuries were the golden age of these impostors. Many of them have already been mentioned in their character of alchemists. The union of the two pretensions is not at all surprising. It was to be expected that those who assumed a power so preposterous as that of prolonging the life of man for several centuries 
should pretend at the same time to foretell the events which were to mark that preternatural span of existence. The world would as readily believe that they had discovered all secrets, as that they had only discovered one. The most celebrated astrologers of Europe, three centuries ago, were alchemists. Agrippa, Paracelsus, Dr. D, and the Rosicrucians all laid as much stress upon their knowledge of the days to come as upon their pretended possession of the philosopher's stone and the elixir of life. In their time, ideas of the wonderful, the diabolical, and the supernatural were rifer than ever they were before. The devil, or the stars, were universally believed to meddle constantly in the affairs of men, and both were to be consulted with proper ceremonies. Those who were of a melancholy and gloomy temperament betook themselves to necromancy and sorcery. Those more cheerful and aspiring devoted themselves to astrology. The latter science was encouraged by all the monarchs and governments of that age. In England, from the time of Elizabeth to that of William and Mary, judicial astrology was in high repute. During that period flourished doctors D, Lamb, and Foreman, with Lilly, Booker, Gadbury, Evans, and scores of nameless impostors in every considerable town and village in the country, who made it their business to cast nativities, aid in the recovery of stolen goods, prognosticate happy or unhappy marriages, predict whether journeys would be prosperous, and note lucky moments for the commencement of any enterprise, from the setting up of a cobbler's shop to the marching of an army. Men who, to use the words of Butler, did deal in destiny's dark counsel and sage opinion of the moon's cell, to whom all people far and near on deep importance did repair, when brass and pewter pots did stray and linen slunk out of the way. In Lilly's memoirs of his life and times, there are many notices of the inferior quacks who then abounded, and upon whom he pretended to look down with supreme contempt, not because they were astrologers, but because they debased that noble art by taking fees for the recovery of stolen property. From Butler's Hudibras and its curious notes, we may learn what immense numbers of these fellows lived upon the credulity of mankind in that age of witchcraft and diablerie. Even in our day, how great is the reputation enjoyed by the almanac-makers, who assume the name of Francis More! But in the time of Charles I and the Commonwealth, the most learned, the most noble, and the most conspicuous characters did not hesitate to consult astrologers in the most open manner. Lilly, whom Butler has immortalised under the name of Sidrophel, relates that he proposed to write a work called An Introduction to Astrology, in which he would satisfy the whole kingdom of the lawfulness of that art. Many of the soldiers were for it, he says, and many of the independent party, and abundance of worthy men in the House of Commons, his assured friends, and able to take his part against the Presbyterians, who would have silenced his predictions if they could. He afterwards carried his plan into execution, and when his book was published, went with another astrologer named Booker to the headquarters of the parliamentary army at Windsor, where they were welcomed and feasted in the garden where General Fairfax lodged. They were afterwards introduced to the general, who received them very kindly, and made allusion to some of their predictions. He hoped their art was lawful and agreeable to God's word, but he did not understand it himself. He did not doubt, however, that the two astrologers feared God, and therefore he had a good opinion of them. 
Lily assured him that the art of astrology was quite consonant to the scriptures, and confidently predicted from his knowledge of the stars that the parliamentary army would overthrow all its enemies. In Oliver's protectorate, this quack informs us that he wrote freely enough. He became an independent, and all the soldiery were his friends. When he went to Scotland, he saw a soldier standing in front of the army, with a book of prophecies in his hand, exclaiming to the several companies as they passed by him, Lo, hear what Lily saith, you are in this month promised victory. Fight it out, brave boys, and then read that month's prediction. After the great fire of London, which Lily said he had foretold, he was sent for by the committee of the House of Commons, appointed to inquire into the causes of the calamity. In his Monarchy or No Monarchy, published in 1651, he had inserted an hieroglyphical plate representing on one side persons in winding-sheets digging graves, and on the other a large city in flames. After the great fire, some sapient member of the legislature bethought him of Lily's book, and having mentioned it in the house, it was agreed that the astrologer should be summoned. Lily attended accordingly when Sir Robert Brooke told him the reason of his summons and called upon him to declare what he knew. This was a rare opportunity for the vain, glorious Lily to vaunt his abilities, and he began a long speech in praise of himself and his pretended science. He said that after the execution of Charles I, he was extremely desirous to know what might from that time forth happen to the Parliament and to the nation in general. He therefore consulted the stars, and satisfied himself. The result of his judgment he put into emblems and hieroglyphics, without any commentary, so that the true meaning might be concealed from the vulgar, and made manifest only to the wise, imitating in this the example of many wise philosophers who had done the like. "'Did you foresee the year of the fire?' said a member. "'No,' quoth Lily, "'nor was I desirous. Of that I made no scrutiny.' After some further parley, the house found they could make nothing of the astrologer, and dismissed him with great civility. One specimen of the explanation of a prophecy given by Lilly, and related by him with much complacency, will be sufficient to show the sort of trash by which he imposed upon the million. In the year 1588, says he, there was a prophecy printed in Greek characters, exactly deciphering the long troubles of the English nation from 1641 to 1660, and it ended thus. And after him shall come a dreadful dead man, and with him a royal G, of the best blood in the world, and he shall have the crown, and shall set England on the right way, and put out all heresies. The following is the explanation of this oracular absurdity. Monkery being extinguished above eighty or ninety years, and the Lord General's name being Monk, is a dead man. The royal G, or C, it is gamma in the Greek, intending C in Latin, being the third letter in the alphabet, is Charles the Second, who for his extraction may be said to be of the best blood of the world. In France and Germany, astrologers met even more encouragement than they received in England. In very early ages, Charlemagne and his successors fulminated their wrath against them in common with sorcerers. Louis XI, that most superstitious of men, entertained great numbers of them at his court, and Catherine de' Medicis, that most superstitious of women, hardly ever undertook any affair of importance without consulting them.
she chiefly favoured her own countrymen and during the time she governed france the land was overrun by italian conjurers necromancers and fortune-tellers of every kind but the chief astrologer of that day beyond all doubt was the celebrated nostradamus physician to her husband king henry the second he was born in fifteen o three at the town of st remy in provence where his father was a notary he did not acquire much fame till he was past his fiftieth year when his famous centuries a collection of verses written in obscure and almost unintelligible language began to excite attention they were so much spoken of in fifteen fifty six that henry the second resolved to attach so skilful a man to his service and appointed him his physician in a biographical notice of him prefixed to the edition of his vrai centuries published at amsterdam in sixteen sixty eight we are informed that he often discoursed with his royal master on the secrets of futurity and received many great presents as his reward besides his usual allowance for medical attendance after the death of penry he retired to his native place where charles the ninth paid him a visit in fifteen sixty four and was so impressed with veneration for his wondrous knowledge of the things that were to be not in france only but in the whole world for hundreds of years to come that he made him a counsellor of state and his own physician, besides treating him in other matters with a royal liberality. In fine, continues his biographer, I should be too prolix were I to tell all the honours conferred upon him, and all the great nobles and learned men that arrived at his house from the very ends of the earth, to see and converse with him as if he had been an oracle. Many strangers, in fact, came to France for no other purpose than to consult him, the prophecies of Nostradamus consist of upwards of a thousand stanzas, each of four lines, and are to the full as obscure as the oracles of old. They take so great a latitude, both as to time and space, that they are almost sure to be fulfilled somewhere or other in the course of a few centuries. A little ingenuity, like that evinced by Lilly in his explanation about General Monk and the dreadful dead man, might easily make events to fit some of them. 58. Let us try. In his second century, prediction 66, he says, From great dangers the captive is escaped. A little time, great fortune changed. In the palace the people are caught. By good augury the city is besieged. What is this, a believer might exclaim, but the escape of Napoleon from Elba, his changed fortune, and the occupation of Paris by the Allied armies? Let us try again. In his third century, prediction 98, he says, Two royal brothers will make fierce war on each other, so mortal shall be the strife between them, that each one shall occupy a fort against the other, for their reign and life shall be the quarrel. Some Linnaeus Redivivus would find no difficulty in this prediction. To use a vulgar phrase, it is as clear as a pike-staff, had not the astrologer in view Don Miguel and Don Pedro when he penned this stanza, so much less obscure and oracular than the rest. He is to this day extremely popular in France and the Walloon country of Belgium, where old farmer wives consult him with great confidence and assiduity. Catherine de Medicis was not the only member of her illustrious house who entertained astrologers. 
at the beginning of the fifteenth century there was a man named basil residing in florence who was noted over all italy for his skill in piercing the darkness of futurity it is said that he foretold to cosmo de medicis then a private citizen that he would attain high dignity inasmuch as the ascendant of his nativity was adorned with the same propitious aspects as those of augustus caesar and the emperor charles v another astrologer foretold the death of prince alexander de medicis and so very minute and particular was he in all the circumstances that he was suspected of being chiefly instrumental in fulfilling his own prophecy a very common resource with these fellows to keep up their credit he foretold confidently that the prince should die by the hand of his own familiar friend a person of a slender habit of body a small face a suave complexion and of most remarkable taciturnity so it afterwards happened alexander having been murdered in his chamber by his cousin lorenzo who corresponded exactly with the above description the author of hermippus redivivus in relating this story inclines to the belief that the astrologer was guiltless of any participation in the crime but was employed by some friend of prince alexander to warn him of his danger a much more remarkable story is told of an astrologer who lived in romagna in the fifteenth century and whose name was antiochus tibertus note sixty one at that time nearly all the petty sovereigns of italy retained such men in their service and Tibertus, having studied the mathematics with great success at Paris, and delivered many predictions, some of which, for guesses, were not deficient in shrewdness, was taken into the household of Pandolfo di Malatesta, the sovereign of Rimini. His reputation was so great that his study was continually thronged, either with visitors who were persons of distinction, or with clients who came to him for advice, and in a short time he acquired a considerable fortune. Notwithstanding all these advantages, he passed his life miserably, and ended it on the scaffold. The following story afterwards got into circulation, and has been often triumphantly cited by succeeding astrologers as an irrefragable proof of the truth of their science. It was said that long before he died, he uttered three remarkable prophecies, one relating to himself, another to his friend, and the third to his patron, Pandolfo di Malatesta, the first delivered was that relating to his friend guido di bogni one of the greatest captains of the time guido was exceedingly desirous to know his fortune and so importuned tibertus that the latter consulted the stars and the lines on his palm to satisfy him he afterwards told him with a sorrowful face that according to all the rules of astrology and palmistry he should be falsely suspected by his best friend and should lose his life in consequence Guido then asked the astrologer if he could foretell his own fate, upon which Tibertus again consulted the stars, and found that it was decreed from all eternity that he should end his days on the scaffold. Malatesta, when he heard these predictions, so unlikely to all present appearance to prove true, desired his astrologer to predict his fate also, and to hide nothing from him, however unfavourable it might be. Tibertus complied, and told his patron, at that time one of the most flourishing and powerful princes of Italy, that he should suffer great want, and die at last like a beggar in the common hospital of Bologna. And so it happened in all three cases. 
Guido di Bogni was accused by his own father-in-law, the Count di Bentivoglio, of a treasonable design to deliver up the city of Rimini to the papal forces, and was assassinated afterwards by order of the tyrant Malatesta, as he sat at the supper-table to which he had been invited in all apparent friendship. The astrologer was at the same time thrown into prison as being concerned in the treason of his friend. He attempted to escape, and had succeeded in letting himself down from his dungeon window into a moat when he was discovered by the sentinels. This being reported to Malatesta, he gave orders for his execution on the following morning. Malatesta had, at this time, no remembrance of the prophecy, and his own fate gave him no uneasiness, but events were silently working its fulfilment. A conspiracy had been formed, though Guido di Bogni was innocent of it, to deliver up Rimini to the Pope, and all the necessary measures having been taken, the city was seized by the Count de Valentinois. In the confusion, Malatesta had barely time to escape from his palace in disguise. He was pursued from place to place by his enemies, abandoned by all his former friends, and finally by his own children. He at last fell ill of a languishing disease at Bologna, and, nobody caring to afford him shelter, he was carried to the hospital, where he died. The only thing that detracts from the interest of this remarkable story is the fact that the prophecy was made after the event. For some weeks before the birth of Louis the Fourteenth, an astrologer from Germany who had been sent for by the Marshal de Bassompierre and other noblemen of the court had taken up his residence in the palace to be ready at a moment's notice to draw the horoscope of the future sovereign of France. When the Queen was taken in labour, he was ushered into a contiguous apartment that he might receive notice of the very instant the child was born. The result of his observations were the three words, Dieu dure felicite, meaning that the newborn prince should live and reign long, with much labour and with great glory. No prediction less favourable could have been expected from an astrologer, who had his bread to get and who was at the same time a courtier. A medal was afterwards struck in commemoration of the event, upon one side of which was figured the nativity of the prince, representing him as driving the chariot of Apollo, with the inscription, Autus Solis Galici, the rising of the Gallic sun. The best excuse ever made for astrology was that offered by the great astronomer Kepler, himself an unwilling practiser of the art. He had many applications from his friends to cast nativities for them and generally gave a positive refusal to such as he was not afraid of offending by his frankness. In other cases he accommodated himself to the prevailing delusion. In sending a copy of his ephemerides to Professor Gerlach, he wrote that they were nothing but worthless conjectures, but he was obliged to devote himself to them, or he would have starved. "'You over-wise philosophers!' he exclaimed in his tertius interveniens. Ye censure this daughter of astronomy beyond her deserts. Know ye not that she must support her mother by her charms? The scanty reward of an astronomer would not provide him with bread if men did not entertain hopes of reading the future in the heavens. Necromancy was, next to astrology, the pretended science most resorted to by those who wished to pry into the future. The earliest instance upon record is that of the witch of Endor and the spirit of Samuel. Nearly all the nations of antiquity believed in the possibility of summoning departed ghosts to disclose the awful secrets that God made clear to the disembodied, 
Many passages in allusion to this subject will at once suggest themselves to the classical reader, but this art was never carried on openly in any country. All governments looked upon it as a crime of the deepest dye. While astrology was encouraged and its professors courted and rewarded, necromancers were universally condemned to the stake or the gallows. Roger Bacon, Albertus Magnus, Arnold of Villeneuve, and many others were accused by the public opinion of many centuries of meddling in these unhallowed matters. So deep-rooted has always been the popular delusion with respect to accusations of this kind that no crime was ever disproved with such toil and difficulty. That it met great encouragement, nevertheless, is evident from the vast numbers of pretenders to it, who, in spite of the danger, have existed in all ages and countries. Geomancy, or the art of foretelling the future by means of lines and circles and other mathematical figures drawn on the earth, is still extensively practised in Asiatic countries, but is almost unknown in Europe. Augury, from the flight or entrails of birds, so favourite a study among the Romans, is in like manner exploded in Europe. Its most assiduous professors at the present day are the abominable thugs of India. Divination, of which there are many kinds, boasts a more enduring reputation. It has held an empire over the minds of men from the earliest periods of recorded history, and is, in all probability, coeval with time itself. It was practised alike by the Jews, the Egyptians, the Chaldeans, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans, is equally known to all modern nations in every part of the world, and is not unfamiliar to the untutored tribes that roam in the wilds of Africa and America. Divination, as practised in civilised Europe at the present day, is chiefly from cards, the teacup, and the lines on the palm of the hand. Gypsies alone make a profession of it, but there are thousands and tens of thousands of humble families in which the good wife, and even the good man, resort to the grounds at the bottom of their teacups to know whether the next harvest will be abundant, or their sow bring forth a numerous litter, and in which the young maidens look to the same place to know when they are to be married, and whether the man of their choice is to be dark or fair, rich or poor, kind or cruel. Divination by cards, so great a favourite among the moderns, is, of course, a modern science, as cards do not yet boast an antiquity of much more than four hundred years. Divination by the palm, so confidently believed in by half the village lasses in Europe, is of older date, and seems to have been known to the Egyptians in the time of the patriarchs, as well as divination by the cup, which, as we are informed in Genesis, was practised by Joseph. Divination by the rod was also practised by the Egyptians. In comparatively recent times it was pretended that by this means hidden treasures could be discovered. It now appears to be altogether exploded in Europe. Onomancy, or the foretelling of a man's fate by the letters of his name, and the various transpositions of which they are capable, is a more modern sort of divination, but it reckons comparatively few believers. The following list of the various species of divination formerly in use is given by Gaul in his Megastromancer, and quoted in Hone's Yearbook, page 1517. Stereomancy, or divining by the elements, Aeromancy, or divining by the air, pyromancy by fire, hydromancy by water, geomancy by earth, theomancy, 
pretending to divine by the revelation of the spirit and by the scriptures or word of god demonomancy by the aid of devils and evil spirits idolomancy by idols images and figures psychomancy by the soul affections or dispositions of men anthropomancy by the entrails of human beings theriomancy by beasts ornithomancy by birds ichthyomancy by fishes botanomancy by herbs lithomancy by stones cleromancy by lots oniromancy by dreams onomancy by names arithmancy by numbers logarithmancy by logarithms sternomancy by the marks from the breast to the belly gastromancy by the sound of or marks upon the belly omphalomancy by the navel chiromancy by the hands podomancy by the feet onchiomancy by the nails cephaleonomancy by asses heads tephromancy by ashes capnomancy by smoke knissomancy by the burning of incense keromancy by the melting of wax lechanomancy by basins of water catoptromancy by looking-glasses cartomancy by writing in papers and by valentines macaromancy by knives and swords crystallomancy by crystals dactylomancy by rings coschinomancy by sieves axinomancy by saws calmancy by vessels of brass or other metal spatillomancy by skins bones etc astromancy by stars skeomancy by shadows astragalomancy by dice oinomancy by the lease of wine sycomancy by figs tyromancy by cheese alphitomancy by meal flour or bran clithomancy by corn or grain electromancy by cocks gyromancy by circles lampadomancy by candles and lamps end of chapter 6 part 1